What place is this? This is one of the new British restaurants. They're starting them all over the country to feed people during wartime, and <laughs> look what you get for four and tuppence. Meat or fish and two veg sixpence, pudding tuppence, soup a penny, tea, coffee and cocoa penny. Blimey, they're giving the stuff away. <laughs> you lucky people. That was the voice of Tommy Trinder, a popular comedian and actor who helped to advertise state-funded canteens during the Second World War. And this is the Full English Podcast, the show that sees the world through food. In this episode, I'm speaking to Bryce Evans, a professor of modern history at Liverpool Hope University, about the forgotten story of publicly funded canteens in Britain and their relevance for today. At their peak, there were some two and a half thousand so-called British restaurants serving affordable meals during World War II and afterwards. That's more state-funded canteens than there are Greggs today, more than McDonald's and Weatherspoons combined. Not only did these restaurants and those also set up in the previous war offer people a desirable place to eat, especially while rationing was in place, but they also hold important lessons for contemporary food bank Britain. Full English is produced by me, Lewis Bassett. Mixing and sound design comes from Forest DLG. Bryce, thank you so much for joining me on the Full English podcast. Um, it's great to speak to you. It's, it's funny because we both came up with the idea for the show at the same time, right? You messaged me and I messaged you literally within the space of a couple of hours of each of us. So. We did. It was quite, quite fortuitous, Lewis, but we're good to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's a really, really interesting topic. I remember coming across um, British restaurants a little while ago and being like, I, I was kind of surprised that more people didn't really talk about these things. Um, and the amount of research out there is quite limited, apart from uh, the stuff that you've been doing and your book, which is great. Um, I haven't read it yet, but I know your publisher is sending me a copy, so I will um, talk a bit more about that when I have. Um, but let's get right into it. So let's start with what were British restaurants um, and when did they appear? They were an attempt at state-sponsored communal dining, which we had in World War II and which first appeared in 1940. Um, they had had a, a previous incarnation during the First World War. So essentially they're experiments in emergency public feeding but they're also supposed to be uplifting in terms of morale and in terms of, although this sounds a little patrician, sort of civilizational virtue. They did subscribe to a sort of food for all model whereby food was cheap, but it was also nutritious. And they appealed across classes. They were, they were public uh, venues. They outlasted the war into the sort of rationing uh, and austerity period, but not long after that. Um, but, you know, you see them in the First World War and the Second World War. And I think really the popular memory of that time is, you know, British restaurants have been obscured because people think about ration books and, and the grocer's shop. But we had this major venture in, in social eating, which, you know, at its height, about two and a half thousand of these venues, which is roughly twice the number of McDonald's when you think about how ubiquitous the, the yellow M of McDonald's is today. And uh, they've been all but forgotten about, but I'm quite fond of them, actually. I think in, in their inimitable way, they, they, they sort of worked. Amazing. We're going to unpack basically everything that you said uh, just there in the course of this interview, from the kind of practical purpose of them to the kind of more lofty uh, ambitions of them and also your contemporary, uh, your feelings about why they're still relevant now. Um, but like to start, I'm just interested in like, 
you know, the kind of basics. And maybe you could tell me a bit about like the vibe of these places, you know, in terms of like who was going, what were they eating, you know, basically just how it worked and how it felt to be there. Well, most of them were, I mean, they varied in size. They're big venues. It's big, long table dining. It's something comparable to uh, Wagamama with its long tables or uh, the Ikea canteen. And the latter reflection, I think, is is worth dwelling on because this was canteen dining, which later becomes very passe. You know, people think of canteen dining and they probably think maybe back to school or, you know, wet trays and the misery of uh, the reek of cabbage and things like that. But yeah, this this was meat and two veg. It was the 1940s, yeah. There wasn't a great range of, of cuisine. But in terms of feeding people en masse, uh, I think they worked quite effectively. Um, now, of course, I'm not an evangelist for this. You know, accounts varied. Some people loved them, some people hated them. But by the, the fact that they had to be cheap, uh, as well as nutritious, well, well, let's come to the price first of all. They were price capped. So it was a, it was a way of effectively ensuring people were fed and, and everyone could afford to eat. But to maintain that on, in terms of a restaurant business, you have to ensure footfall. So the actual business model of them was a local authority, well, a community actually, would appeal to the local authority, would lobby the local authority. The local authority then appeals to central government, Ministry of Food. They then receive, if, if the venue is, is suitable, a capital grant comes in. Um, but the big thing is here, they had to break even. even. They had to operate as, as you know, thriving businesses. So any that didn't um, have enough people visiting they, in the, you know, brute traditions of, uh, you know, centralized state interventionism were, were kind of just shut down. But the fact that you had about two and a half thousand of them functioning throughout the war and after kind of, I think, is a testament to their broad popularity. Mm. So just to be clear, so the state was providing the investment to set them up and then the local authority was effectively managing that or mediating that. Um, but they were ran as businesses, so they had to they had to make money in order to get by independently. Yeah, they did. Yeah, this is the interesting thing because you say you sort of you know state subsidised dining or social eating, and people think you know well. It, again, the, the comparisons to other countries in the twentieth century, it won't surprise you to hear that that this model of communal dining was really popular in the Soviet Union. But and again, I don't want to get too jingoistic about the British experience. I'm an Irish historian, actually, so I don't want to get carried away with the whole sort of wartime narrative of, you know, oh, it was great, you could leave your front door open and all this kind of stuff. But I think the British way in which they're employed, like in the Soviet Union, you get accounts of, you know, ideologically pure yet awful chefs, for example. In Britain, they were actually quite well managed. They, there was quite a lot of back and forth with private industry. Marks and Spencer used to run a lot of these um, in parts of London. To come back to your question about um, how they functioned, yeah, it was what we'd call today like a startup grant, um, you know, from the Ministry of Food, from central government. They then have to function. The reason, again, they have to ensure footfall and break even is they've got a paid staff and a paid manager and professional chefs. So, again, if we contrast it perhaps to more Dickensian ways of public feeding, or perhaps, I'm actually an unashamed critic of the food bank today, you know, this isn't just feeding crap to the very poor, this is an experiment, albeit flawed in some ways, to ensure that, you know, food for all, essentially, is sort of universalism in provision of food. And in terms of the clientele, you've got to be careful because, you know, wartime propaganda, but, you know, in their First World War incarnation, you do get fairly credible accounts of ladies in furs sitting down next to 
kids with no uh, no shoes on their feet, you know. So they were deliberately designed to be cross-class venues. Another thing to mention is, of course, during the war, it wasn't just British restaurants. You had a you know a panoply of sort of canteen dining, workplace dining, pithead canteens in mines, that kind of thing. There were sort of workplace and dock canteens for heavy industrial workers. These were high street venues sort of aimed at the general public and at everyone. And in that sense, I think that they, they did have a cross-class appeal. So they were cheap and they weren't on the ration book. Um, so that made it really uh, desirable for people on a, on a small budget. But they were also desirable to go to anyway, you're kind of saying. like, they, they, Yeah, they were specifically... Des- and again, it's, I don't want to get too misty-eyed about them, but you know, they were specifically designed in World War I. You know, there, there's a moment there of... You know, it's growing out of, you know, late Victorian Edwardian traditions of municipal socialism. It's growing out of the activism of working class women, and it is effectively women, who who set up these canteens or or kitchens off their own bat uh, to to cope with wartime price inflation. Uh, And very famous people like Sylvia Pankhurst, for example, runs them in the East End of London. The state kind of looks at that model and then sort of rips it off and patriotically rebrands it National kitchens in World War One and British restaurants in World War Two, um, but there is that that sense of a fusion of uh, you know originally sort of voluntarist ethics, a lot of faith faith based ethic in terms of the social eating model. But there is a moment where the state, you know, in terms of the Ministry of Food, says we're going to do this, and you know we won't have any taint of religion or charity um, or, or sort of proselytization or the sort of you know. Lady Bountiful, the lady with the ladle, uh, to the ple- you know giving food to the, the grateful plebs. This will be, I think, quite an interesting experiment in food for all and appealing to to, to everybody. Uh, of course, like you mentioned, look, there's a rationing system. One of the big attractions was you, you could get meat off the ration in these venues, so that helps explain some of their popularity. Mm. I feel like in you saying that we're gonna, uh, you're touching on some of the reasons why, as you say, you're a critic of food banks today. But we're going to come to that in the in the second half of the show. Um, I just know there's a kind of interesting story behind why they were called British restaurants, and there was an original name which was really uh, dour, can you, which I, I've now forgotten. But can you tell me what the original name was and how they came to be called British restaurants? Yeah, well, this this does tie into the sort of Churchill hagiography. Um, which I'm not, I'm not a great I'm not a great great fan of you know the great man theory of history, but you have to hand it to Churchill. He was right in this uh, in this instance because the Ministry of Food, with that um, you know desire that they be attractive, that they be so-called centres of civilization, you know to, to improve people. Uh, there's there's that slightly patrician aspect there, but also that sort of utilitarianism wants to call them uh, communal feeding centres. And Churchill, quite rightly, you know, being a great um, you know, Bon Vivant himself said, look, no, nobody looks forward to going to a communal feeding centre. It, it just sounds Soviet or, or you know, Victorian, basically. It's sort of chilly philanthropy uh, kind of uh, evoked there. So it's actually Churchill to give him his due, who says we will call them British restaurants. And of course, you've got patriotic and, and propagandistic and jingoistic rebranding there of the sort of national patriotism, but also the, the sense that I think Churchill is right. But why, why shouldn't... Um, you know, the working class be able to go and eat in a restaurant. You know, we've got to look at it in that perspective. Most people had never, you know, most working class people broadly defined had never eaten out. Uh, and and I think that's quite interesting in terms of their political identity, which I'm sure we'll touch on. And, you know, they are 
products of a sort of almost very sort of liberal um, municipal socialism, I'd say. They're products of increasing sort of left-wing thinking, socialist thinking, feminist thinking. A lot of people from the Fabian Society, champions of them. But also there's a tradition we have to acknowledge of, um, I suppose, what you might call one-nation Toryism, uh, where they're fitting that bill of sort of we're all in it together under the flag. So they're quite interesting and they're kind of slightly fluid um, political identity as well. I feel like that story about why they, that why they became called British restaurants and kind of Churchill's, I guess, like populism in a way, um, really demonstrates what they were or what they became, which is, yeah, like you said, just not these places that were doling out calories for the deserving poor, but were, you know, desirable on some level places to eat. Um, yeah, it's, it's a cool story. Um, but I know that Churchill refused to eat in these places. <laughs> yeah, this is again, again typical sort of Churchillian. Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't know how better to describe it than sort of the patrician attitude. Like, yes, this will do for the great unwashed, but I'm good. I mean, at the opening of, of uh, well, they were launching Walton Pie in the Savoy. Walton Pie, another sort of very healthy but similarly quite unpalatable wartime dish. And Can you say what the pie is, sorry? It's essentially sort of turnips and carrots in a, in a very thin pastry, a very sort of wartime grow-your-own ethic. And Churchill famously, to, to the indignation of his Minister for Food, Lord Walton, who came from a much more sort of puritanical background, uh, sent his back and said, I'll have the steak instead. So there's, of course, that patrician aspect there but ultimately he's right in terms of uh what but you know I, I certainly would like to go and eat in a restaurant rather than a communal feeding center um yeah. i think he, he hit the nail on the head there so i mean yeah you, you know because churchill's got a famous or had a famous appetite and like loved you know the finer things in life champagne port or the rest but he and he was obviously a liberal in the, in the earlier part of his political career and I'm just wondering why, I mean, you touched on some of the causes there um, in terms of socialism, um, activism by, by, by women. Um, but I'm just wondering why among elites there was a shift towards having state provision at the community level. Because, I mean, Britain is kind of known for being a country that, you know, is a hands-off country in terms of lots of social welfare, certainly in the Victorian period. And as you said, like leaving it up to charities and stuff, like this laissez-faire liberalism. But there's a shift happening, isn't there, from the time you get these national restaurants and British restaurants. And I'm wondering what kind of what's happening there. No, you're dead right. Yeah, I mean, the First World War, you know, it's, uh, it, again, the, again, it really, you feel for working-class women who set up these bodies and then... Uh, all ownership, really, and identity is sort of removed, um, an agency removed from them, and they're written out of history, and they're called uh, National Kitchens and opened with great fanfare by the Queen, and um, they're run by uh, Lord Rhonda, who is the Minister of Food in World War One, and also his deputy, Charles Spencer, who is uh, a really annoying uh, self-made man, a tramway magnet from Halifax. And they're sort of run along a very patriarchal, um, hard-headed business uh, model. But the state had to come round to, to, to the fact that, that that model of feeding people en masse, as pioneered by working-class women, is what was working, because previous to that, it had just all been voluntarism. Um, but of course, as the, as the war bites into 1916 and 17, um, you know, you've got disruption of supplies, you've got rampant food inflation, 
the state has to be pushed into a position where it recognizes it, it has to be more interventionist. Of course, you've got the, the transition of government then with, with Lloyd George, who's a much more interventionist type of liberal, um, believes in the sort of push and go rather than wait and see perspective. Lloyd George, interestingly, liked them because they were dry sites. You didn't get alcohol there. Famous sort of Welsh nonconformist. That's a kind of anti-alcohol perspective there as well. Um, but I sp and, and so it's a really good question. World War II is slightly different because everybody knows. I think the threat of aerial, uh, aerial bombardment, you know, massive destruction by bombing. Beveridge, you know, famously William Beveridge, writes a memo saying we need communal dining schemes in World War II because this war is going to be unlike anything before in terms of its civilian impact. So um, in World War II, there's, there's much more, more of an early realization that big state interventionism is needed, that voluntarism won't cut it, especially when you're having, you know, whole sections of cities destroyed, huge sections of populations destitute or temporarily homeless, that kind of thing. So on the one side, like, I guess the state um, is recognizing the needs of citizens more and more. Um, and then also citizens, or especially you know activists, female activists, and trade unions are like becoming more involved in the state. So there's a kind of from above and from below thing happening, maybe, and that maybe the, these these um, these experiences are kind of partly the result of that. Yeah, and I think it's it, for that reason it is. Uh, I mean, again, I don't want to get too romantic about it, but it, it you know the state takes them on and just rebrands them. Um, and kind of steals them from, from like, say, working-class initiative, be that female initiative or be that... Um, the, the, Labour, the, Labour, the early Labour Party had championed these as well. Um, but at the same time, because of the nature of British society, you have got that, you know, again, it's only too romantic, but there's a co-creation going on there. There's a mediation. But this isn't just the, the big juggernaut central states coming in as it was in places like the Soviet Union or even the fascist countries where the state will come in and it will do this. There's, a, there's an evolution and a moderation going on there to reach this point. And that's why I think it's interesting the way they evolve and the way that they function. Mm. Uh, but like, did people actually like them or were they just going there because they had to? I mean, like you said, it's easy to be glossy-eyed and look back at them and be like, wow, what wonderful places they were. But I mean, is there any evidence that people actually enjoyed like the food, they enjoyed going there? Or did they just go there because they were desperate? Yeah, well, it, I mean, the, I suppose historians trying to get accounts of the time is difficult because you have a wartime economy, you have a lot of propaganda going on. Um, the mass observation reports, you know, which is essentially when, when you had diarists, anonymous diarists taking notes uh, for the government on aspects of their daily life, they're genu generally positive, um, overwhelmingly so. I, I can't remember the stats, but sort of 80-plus percent positive on, on these places and how they functioned. Then again, you know, eating is inherently subjective, so you've got some accounts of uh, mass observation diarists saying, like I went to a British restaurant, I, I, I ate um, mock duck and it gave me tremendous gas for a week, or um, you know, it, it was just beige slop, this kind of thing. But generally speaking, from what I've gone through, they're generally positive. Um, again, it's not the kind of you know, it's not the kind of food I, w I would want to eat. It, it's very much meat and two veg. There was an interesting mediation though with, with the menus because you know the Ministry of Food nutritionists wanted everybody to be eating very healthy vegetable-based based broths um, in any public feeding venture. But when you've got you know again people bombed out of their homes. All you want after being bombed out is maybe a pasty and a Kit Kat or, or a pie. So again, there's that mediation going on between the, the healthy food and the comfort food. And I think what emerges is it is healthy in, in, in that it broadly corresponds to the sort of NHS eat well plate of today. 
about a third of your of your plate would would be veg, lots of green leafy veg, basically, and then you'd have your your, your spuds and your meats and your pie, maybe. So it is healthy, nutritious food, but again, it's not sort of uber healthy. That the ministry, one nutritionist at the ministry wanted everybody eating the Oslo breakfast at British restaurants, which you know sounds as unappetizing as it was, basically a sort of you know extreme continental breakfast, but. I think there was quite a nice mediation uh, between, you know, health imperatives and, um, you know, sort of comfort, comfort food. And lots of puddings, right? And tea, presumably. Lashings, lashings of, of tea and pudding and, and all that. Custard. Stuff. Of course, it's, it's going to be It's quite... like school dinners kind of thing, right? Y- yes, it, to be fair, but, you know, that, that's of its time, isn't it? I mean, we, um, I've recreated these. We've recreated these, got some money from the Arts and Humanities Research Council in 2018. The best one we did was in a Pakistani community centre in Nottingham, and it was entirely curry-based. Um, and again, we recreated these recently up in Liverpool. Uh, I did this with local MP Ian Byrne, who's the, the parliamentary lead on the Right to Food campaign. And, you know, we were able to offer a different cuisine every night. So it, I think if you did recreate them today, it'd be wonderful, the, the range of cuisines you could offer. Obviously, back then, though, yeah, it's pretty stodgy fare. So National Kitchens were obviously... Uh, lasted during the First World War. British restaurants appear in the Second World War, but they continue um, after uh, the Second World War as well. And I think they start to decline from memory um, in the mid-50s, or they kind of start to disappear in the mid-50s. Um, do you have an account for why they disappeared, given that they were so so popular? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. I think they are very much associated with that. You know, remember, rationing, of course, continues into the 50s. And their dismantling is very much the dismantling of that whole package. It's also to do with, um, you know, the growth of a more modern consumer capitalism, the growth of the slow growth of, of supermarkets. I, I mean, the reason I'm mentioning this is that some of them survive into the 60s, 70s and 80s in some places. But of course, as you get the 60s coming along, you've got the democratization of, of eating out. You've got, you know, the, the Italian, the Indian, other options, uh, other private options, which sort of subsume this. So they become, they come to be seen as a little bit passe, a little bit old hats. Um, I think, you know, by the time we get to rampant individualism of, of the Thatcher, Thatcherite 80s, they, they come to be seen as, you know, very passe and, and, and you know, why on earth would you want to go you know, any you know, to a social eating place? Um, Today, there's there's kind of a sort of mini revival uh, where yeah, actually this thing is seen as fairly hipster. But you know, by in the sort of Thatcherite individualism, they're seen as very sort of outdated. Um, I think there's another thing as well. There's a bit of a cheeky point here, and again, it's difficult to, to measure it historically. But um, George Orwell, George Orwell used to eat in the, the BBC canteen every day during the war, which is a great, a great example again of a public feeding model. Um, and Orwell writes 1984, and there's the famous canteen scene where these sort of miserable proles are having this disgusting beige slop doled out to them. And that was sort of a, 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 a bastardization of the, the BBC canteen. So I think he, even in the realms of popular culture, you know, in 1984, such a best-selling book, then slowly the notion of canteen dining becomes, um, you know, a bit kind of, uh, you know, a bit sort of old-fashioned, if you like. Um, but it's interesting in other countries, you know, Germany, you know, the workplace canteen continues to thrive. Um, I think it's in general, we lose that canteen culture. I know you've kind of um, touched upon this in previous episodes about, you know, like the, the, the English calf and, and that, you know, the culture of dining, where you dine and dining together. And again, in another of your episodes, I was listening to, you know, should we nationalize Weatherspoons? Weatherspoons minus the booze 
is broadly analogous in some ways, although obviously Wetherspoon's privately owned, but uh, to, to what's going on here. You know, these are big, big venues on high streets. That's another critical point. These are not located in back alleys um, or dingy back streets. The, the, the Ministry of Food goes out of its way to, to put them in the most prominent high street locations. That, of course, engenders problems as well, because if you're a private restaurateur, suddenly you've got this massive venue on your doorstep. So a lot of people said it, it, it represented a sort of derogation of you know, the British market virtue of fair play. Um, but yeah, that, these were prominent high street venues, and I think that's another point to consider. Mm. You're coming on to the contemporary relevance of these shows, so I think we'll take a quick break here. And then when we get back, um, we'll get into how we're going to make canteen culture a thing again today. You're listening to The Full English Podcast. And if you've got this far in the show, you probably think it's worthwhile. That's why I think you should, if you can, give us £3 a month to make this podcast possible. As we try and make this show better and better, giving you new episodes every two to three weeks, we really, really need your help. Currently, we make about £150 a month, and that's barely covering our costs. So if you can, go to patreon.com forward slash full English and show your support. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash full English. Thanks very much. Welcome back to the second half of the show. I'm here with Bryce Evans. We're talking about British restaurants, which were national uh, canteens, effectively set up in the First and Second World War. Um, but we want to talk now about the kind of contemporary relevance of British restaurants and your research and activism, Bryce, because you, I think you called for a return to these kitchens. It, it made, you made some headways when you did that. It kind of got picked up in Parliament, uh, got picked up in a few newspapers. Maybe you can start by telling me what it was that you were calling for and why. Well, I, sp I suppose it's a very difficult conversation to criticize the food bank because there's a tremendous amount of people who give of their time voluntarily to run food banks. However, I think when we step back and, and, and ask ourselves, how will history view, view you know, the last 12, 15 years in terms of the rise of the food bank? I don't think it's a sustainable model. I don't think it's a sustainable model in terms of people eating well, in terms of rates of, you know, obesity, diabetes, that kind of thing. If you essentially think of that model, which is in its most basic form, I should caveat that, in its most basic form, people having to prove their poverty through referral at a food bank and then being given often, you know, bags of sometimes, you know, very, quite unhealthy, you know, in terms of all the, the stuff we know now in terms of ultra-processed food, stuff to take home and prepare on their own. You know, we know a lot of people actually can't afford sometimes to heat the food or don't have the, the skills to cook. And again, that's its most basic model of the food bank. I know there are exceptions to that. I know some food banks do have cafes. Again, I'm not criticizing, uh, you know, the voluntary sector for fulfilling that gap. However, you know, in the round, if we look at that as a solution, I think we're falling well short and I think we're actually going back in time. We're going back to, I have to say, something Dickensian in, in its bleakness when, when you think about the basic model of the food bank. And I just couldn't help contrast that with what, what I, I'd researched in terms of this, I must say, quite hidden history or forgotten history in terms of social eating. Now, I'm not saying it's, it's a, it's a cure-all or a, it might not even be applicable to today, of course, and it, you know we shouldn't just revive stuff for the sake of nostalgia, but surely we have to think differently and more sustainably about where we source our food 
fairness in uh, you know the sourcing of food, but also healthiness and nutrition in terms of what the poorest in society are eating. But I think now we see with the food bank, you know, a lot of people who are in in work using food banks. So we're back in a way to that conundrum of food for all and the best methods of feeding the people en masse. And I just think alongside other income-based supports and other measures, uh, this could be one component of that. And, and in terms of the parliamentary right to food campaign, which, as I said, is headed by Ian Barron, local MP up here in Liverpool, you know, one of, of their five pillars is social eating or communal kitchens. So uh, I think they do a, a creative reimagination of the model could have a place in a more sustainable food future. Yeah. Yeah. So I suppose if you picture food banks a bit like how they're depicted in Ken Loach's I, Daniel Blake film, which is to say, like, yeah, quite bleak, a place you go to when you're incredibly desperate. Um, not really, it's a place where there's obviously not much joy and just like calories effectively and like toiletries are kind of handed out to you and you feel a bit bad about it. Um, then if you see food banks in that way, and as you say, I'm sure not all food banks are really like that, but if you see food banks in that way, it doesn't sound great. But I'm just wondering, what is it exactly that you and, and the campaign that you're part of would be proposing and how would that be different? Well, I think a step along the way is that the Labour Party have said that they would fund breakfast clubs, for example. Um, I think that's an example of social eating, which which could work fairly well. I think the interesting thing about the model, you know, some you know some people when you say social eating, it just turns them off because there are again, this is why I'm not a, you know I'm a historian rather than an evangelist for this stuff. There's, there's examples of social eating in history which are terrible, you know, whether that's Stalinist Russia whether that's Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge, where the only private item you were allowed to own was a spoon and you had to eat en masse. Awful examples of social eating. But it can also be a very uplifting thing. And I think, from my experience and my research, it is more uplifting than the basic food bank. I think a lot of people, unfortunately, feel defeated before they walk through the door of a food bank. So I haven't got the blueprint. What I have got is a lot of historical research. I think what's heartening to me is to hear um, you know, people from the private sector saying this could work. And it always worked in the past. Uh, and again, I try not to get too misty-eyed. It's that compromise between the big states and big juggernaut of state intervention, but also local communities and also the private sector. Like I said before, the private sector always had quite a big role in providing the expertise um, to make these attractive places. That, that was, it was always the key criteria of these places. In World War I, that meant tablecloths, cut flowers, um, pianos, bunting, this kind of stuff. Again, very sort of old-fashioned these days, but the point being it's somewhere you want to go rather than somewhere you feel defeated before you walk in the front door. And again, people say to me, look, this is never going to work these days. People don't. Of course, nobody expects the state to do everything these days. Of course they don't. You know, we've come a long way, you know, since the, the, the wartime period or the austerity period. But people forget, you know, that... During, during coronavirus, for example, we had state-subsidized social eating effectively through the vast, vastly imperfect eat-out-to-help-out scheme. But you had a return. I never thought in my lifetime, to be honest, that I'd see some kind of you know, state-sponsored dining return, but it did. So I just think sometimes people are a little bit closed-minded in terms of creative reimaginings of what we once had or, or potential to feed people more sustainably because... You know, in terms of the public health crisis linked to diet and nutrition, I don't think the food bank is any kind of good solution. Mm. You mentioned eat out to help out. Um, I mean, 
yeah, like let's put criticisms of that policy to one side because I know a lot of people will say it was disastrous in terms of spreading the virus. But doesn't that kind of show us that the state really only wants to get involved in people's lives? I mean, the state under this Tory administration really wants to get involved in people's lives when there's a crisis. And otherwise, it's really hands-off, right? Leave it to the... Like like you said, it's, it is a kind of return to these mid-Victorian liberal laissez-faire values, right? Other than in situations of a crisis. So do you think that can change? Like maybe an incoming Labour government might be more up for this or maybe through advocacy or campaigning or even just like making these things happen on the ground like with some of the stuff you've been doing, um, that could change. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It, you're right, he's had to help out sort of sp- <laughs> spread the virus in a lot of ways. And there's an interesting historical parallel there because when these uh, national kitchens declined after World War I, 1918, 1919, the biggest reason was the influenza pa- uh, uh, epidemic, um, which is why you couldn't just have people eating en masse anymore. So a lot of them were closed down because of that. But of course, in its modern incarnation, he's had to help out. We don't want to let public health get in the way of the marketplace, do we? So... Uh, we have to, to save our businesses fundamentally. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the I think it would take uh, a, lot, a lot of political will. There's obviously more political will coming from within the Labour Party than within the current incarnation of the Conservative Party, which kind of forgets the fact that great Conservative heroes like Churchill and all the rest were, were, were great champions of these things in the first place. Margaret Thatcher's father, actually, um, Alf Roberts, the famous grocer, the paragon of privatised individualism, uh, actually ran uh, a series of these in Grantham. Um, again, so their political identity is continuously fluid. Uh, how would they function today? You'd have to remove that 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 notion back in the day of you know the, the, the big state intervening to to the disadvantage of local business. Nobody wants that. But we've got to ask ourselves: what is the most sustainable way to feed people? Um, and in terms of public health outcomes, I don't think this would be a bad thing. Uh, again, like I say, alongside income-based supports, I don't think this would be a bad thing whatsoever. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you mentioned it a bit already, but I'm just wondering if you could say a bit more about, what, like, how would these places, you know, compared to the dire state of a food bank, maybe, like, how would they feel and what would they be like? You mentioned earlier in the first half of the show how these places functioned a bit like an Ikea canteen. Because that's, in my mind, it's like quite a democratic space where the food is really cheap. Or like Weatherspoons or... I mean, I, I, I suppose you're not going to prescribe anything, but do you have a sense of like what it would be like and how it would be different to a food bank? I've seen models up here. Um, I don't know. I have to do more research. But the, the company shop model, um, I've seen, for example, in a, I was invited to talk at a canteen on a high street building run by the company shop network, which is a sort of... Um, uh, semi-charitable approach to, to feeding people, where uh, that was up in North Liverpool. What, what struck me about that place was they had a professional chef in there, the food was cheap and it was nutritious, and it was on a high street. So for me, the whole thing is about competing on the high street, competing with, you know, we've, you know, vastly different world of consumer capitalism since the 1950s and 60s. You've got tremendous array. We're only human in terms of wanting to occasionally eat crap food and you've got a tremendous array of options in front of you. You know, you've only got to go down any high street and you've got your chicken shop and your KFC and your McDonald's and then you've got, of course, takeaway options, uh, very numerous. What I liked about that example run by Company Shop in North Liverpool was that it was on the high street right opposite a McDonald's. And I think that's the critical thing. Something you've touched on this pod before is the notion of the third space. So the cafe, the Weatherspoons, as being a place where 
increasingly a population who work from home or work off their laptop. You could go for a few hours, you could sit down. It's not going to cost you the earth. This point was raised to me very, very powerfully when I was down in London. Sadiq Khan, um, he has a sort of uh, a youth parliament uh, for London down there. And a girl from, um, young girl from Tower Hamlets, um, obviously, you know, pretty disadvantaged uh, um, locale, says, I'm fed up of middle-class people talking about how, how McDonald's is terrible. She goes, I go to McDonald's, it, it, it's warm, it's, it's clean, I can charge my phone, I can stay there for a while, I can eat cheap food, and, and I feel safe as a young woman. And I think if these were to be reimagined, you've got to bring in private commercial expertise so that they compete on the high street with, with third spaces like Weatherspoons and McDonald's as a healthy alternative. Again, I don't think that's too utopian. And the reason I don't think it's too utopian is that Henry Dimbleby, who you've had on before, you know, the, the founder of the Leon chain, says, yes, it would be difficult, but you could do this. What, a member of his task force, uh, the, the former CTO of Ocado, you know, another big food provider, said, yeah, we should do this. So it's not just um, you know, lefty academics like me saying this stuff, I think if you had the right, it, it all takes political will. If you had the right political will and commercial buy-in, for the, for the benefit of all though, rather than, than, than effectively the profit motive, you could have a reimagining of this for the, for the benefit of everyone. Because this approach that, um, you know, it, we, you know, everything has to, it's a zero-sum um, race towards what the market wants. Well, we've seen the shortcomings of that, haven't we, in terms of planetary destruction and impending health crisis, obesity, diabetes, and all the rest. So there has to be more creative joined up social thinking on this kind of stuff. So apart from nutrition, Bryce, uh, I know, again, again, you're a historian and it's not really your expertise, but I'm wondering if you could tell me a bit more about like this, what you would see as some of the benefits, maybe like the social benefits of uh, these kind of places. Yeah, as you say, I'm a historian, uh, so I, you know, my research is based in the past, but there's some great researchers, um, Marsha Smith being one, who's someone who's gone from being a practitioner uh, in terms of social eating to researching it. And she's done a lot of research on the, the social benefits in terms of mental health, in terms of combating social dislocation, loneliness, uh, depression, all these other factors that, that we have today. So again, not, not really within my purview, but there's a really, really strong case for this as proved in you know, several academic papers of the social, mental, psychological um, benefits to a social eating model. No, I'm convinced. Bring back uh, desirable, delicious social canteens, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm there, man. Bryce, uh, thank you so much. Your book is called Feeding the Nation in, um, sorry, Feeding the People in Wartime Britain. Um, and that's out with Bloomsbury. I think it came out last year. Yeah, it's, um, it's horrendously high priced because it's an academic book. But in line with, thank you for the book plug, in November, in November, it's out in paperback. Um, uh, so it would be considerably cheaper if people want to get hold of it. And I, I do write bits and pieces uh, free to view, of course, online. I will put some links to your uh, writing about um, British restaurants in the show notes. I'll put other relevant links as well. And um, when your book comes out in paperback at the more affordable price than the academic hardback, we'll also tweet about it and maybe we'll check in with you then again as well. So yeah, Bryce, thank you so much. That's super, super interesting topic. And as you say, it, should, it needs to be covered more and it's super, super relevant to uh, the situation we're in right now. Great. Thank you, Lewis. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Full English Podcast. If you like the show, give it a share. And if you can, please sign up to give us £3 a month over on patreon.com 
forward slash full English. I'm Lewis Bassett. Mixing and sound design is from Forest DLG.